Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Our guest today is Aaron Durant. Aaron founded Durant Barristers after practicing law as a partner at one of the largest firms in Canada. Aaron has represented clients at more or less every level of court that you can name and regularly provides barrister services to other lawyers to assist with trials, appeals, and other complex situations. As you will hear, Aaron started her firm after experiencing mental health challenges during the pandemic and is using it to bring a fresh approach to the practice of law. Our wide-ranging conversation covers the reason Aaron left the big firm to start up her own practice, Aaron's experience with burnout and the lack of control she felt in a big firm setting, the practical steps Aaron used to set up and manage the risk of launching her own practice, and she also lays out some fantastic resources. We also discuss how many of her biggest fears of leaving a traditional firm proved to be unfounded, including, importantly, her compensation, what traits Aaron looks for when hiring lawyers, and of course, it wouldn't be a good lawyer podcast if we didn't at least touch on why many firms' almost religious focus on the billable hour often leads to bad outcomes for both lawyers and clients. It was a delight having Erin on the show, and I hope any of you thinking of setting up your own practice will find her advice informative and inspiring. For more on Erin, make sure to follow her on LinkedIn and check out her ebook, It Burned Me All Down, available on her firm's website. Links, as always, in the show notes. All right, that's it for me. Please enjoy today's episode. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here today. Having me, Matt. But just to start off, I'd just love to allow you to introduce yourself to our audience, just who you are and what your current practice looks like. Aaron Durant. I'm a litigation lawyer who's based in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I've been practicing for about 10 years. I started my own firm, Durant Barristers, in May of uh, 2021 during the COVID-19 pandemic. We focus primarily on litigation, but we also do investigations, mediations, arbitrations. I, I sit as a mediator and arbitrator on smaller disputes. We're a team now of three lawyers, one law clerk and a law student who will be joining us shortly. So relatively small and tight knit team of folks. And before I started my own firm, I was a partner at one of Canada's largest law firms, and I had also summered an article in Big Law, and in, in between those two stints, I worked at a, a litigation boutique sort of mid-sized firm north of Toronto. So I've been a little bit everywhere, but I think I found a, a pretty comfortable home as a, the owner of a small firm. Well, that's incredible, and I think that's a perfect place to jump into our conversation because you are like more people that I maybe realized who have had it made in big law, became a partner or were firmly on track to becoming a partner, which I'm sure, as you know, in law school, that tends to be one of the things that gets drilled into you pretty early that you join a firm and the gold standard is to make it to, to become a partner. I'd love to just hear a little bit about your experience and what made you decide to leave that world to jump out on your own. 
so many thoughts and opinions and, and rants about partnership in in big law that I am happy to just blurt out right now. And I actually wrote a lot of them down. I recently put out an ebook on my website called It Burned Me All Down, which talks a bit about my my career and my history in, in big law. But I think for me at least, achieving the the ultimate goal of, of partnership became a little bit of a letdown, to be honest. As you're an associate in big law, you know, it's sort of the goal, right? Everyone's working towards making partner, maybe not everyone, but a lot of the, the folks that are high achievers, you know, you put in the long hours with this, this golden ticket at the end of the day in partnership. And I remember the first year that I was eligible for partnership and I didn't make it. I was quite upset that I didn't get there. And I was talking to one of the young income partners who, who was already in that position. And, and he told me like, you know, really don't be disappointed. It, it's not that big of a, a change. And I remember being mad at him at the time and being like, you know, what do you mean? It's not that big of a change. You know, this is what everybody wants. It's the recognition, you know, being part of a club, but in my book, how I described it as, you know, you get invited to the partnership, it gets announced, you get all kinds of of kudos on social media and from your friends congratulating you on achieving this amazing accomplishment. But then your day-to-day life doesn't actually change at all. <laughs> I still had the same never-ending stream of files. Um, I still was relatively low on the overall law firm totem pole. Most big law firms have different levels of partnership. Uh, as an income partner, which is what I was, you're also not eligible to take on, you know, leadership or management responsibilities within the firm. You may be surprised to hear that your pay doesn't necessarily even increase by that much, you know, so at the end of the day, it's a great time to get a whole bunch of notifications on on social media and, and have a celebration with your family. But it was sort of a letdown at the end of the day for me as somebody who had started out at a smaller firm with sort of a, a real partnership where people are very, you know, engaged in day-to-day decision-making. Whereas at a big firm, you have an executive committee or, or senior level management, COO, CEOs that, that take care of all that stuff. So, so yeah, for me, it, it was a bit of a letdown. And I think ultimately it sort of led towards me thinking of leaving, understanding right. what the big firm partnership dynamic was like and just realizing that I'm more of the type of person that actually wants to make decisions and do things and, and not have to go through multiple levels of, of bureaucracy. So, so that's my partnership rant to start the afternoon. No, you know, you know what? I think this topic is so important because when I, I was, I uh, articled and worked at a big firm myself and inadvertently uh, one of the income partners came to me and he just made partner and I congratulated him on on doing so and he laughed and he said yeah uh, he was about six months in he's like yeah I'm just a glorified associate is, is what he said and uh, he, he meant it tongue-in-cheek but it really stuck with me and it caused me to actually go in and look how these big firms were structured and you just pointed out quite a few things but so can maybe just give us a quick breakdown for those who may not know how does a big firm operate and how is the the money divvied up? Large firms in in Canada and the U.S. have multiple levels of partnership now. They have what's called equity partner, which is more of a partner in the traditional sense. 
you know, they are the ones that share directly in the firm's profits. Most firms don't share completely equally. There's still all kinds of mathematical equations and work that goes on to, to decide who gets what percentage of the pie. But the income partner level, I find is largely partner in, in name only. Um, <laughs> you still get paid, you still get paid basically a salary. They, they change the way in which your salary is paid. So at our firm, income partners were paid once monthly in the form of a draw rather than bi-weekly or, or bi-monthly. They also withhold a portion of your draw to make sure that the firm and, and you meet your targets and that's paid out at the end of the year. Income partners are also basically on a similar structure in terms of payment of bonuses. So the, the only real change that, that I saw was, you know, of course I got invited to, to more meetings. Right. Congratulations, more non-billable time spent in meetings. But, but most of the meetings I found at least were, were informational. So for the information of the partners, so you'd, you'd get some more financial data than typically would be made available to associates. You would get a little bit of the high level, you know, what the firm's working towards, but it was always presented more as we're giving you this for your information rather than having a discussion about anything. So it's funny what you, you mentioned your, your friend at your old firm referring to it being a, a glorified associate. And I don't want to sound that cynical, but you know, one thing I wrote in the book was that there were times I felt like the only advantage of being an income partner was I'd find out about an initiative or an announcement the evening before the associates and the staff were told about it. You know, it's not like there was consul consultation right. and discussion and you knew about this thing was happening for months. It would be, you know, a relatively big announcement and you'd find out about it, you know, 12 or 24 hours before the, the rest of the firm. So but it, it was very different than sort of what I expected in terms of starting at the small firm and there being discussions at the ground level that work their way up to a management team. Um, you know, it, it tends to be an executive committee or a partnership board right. who, who steers most of the boat in terms of what they're going to do. And then the role of the, the partners on the ground is, is more selling the message to, to everybody else and getting behind it. That's an interesting way of describing it. So you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times now. Was it the lack of real, I guess, quote unquote, decision-making authority? Was that the main issue for you, becoming a partner and maybe becoming somewhat disillusioned by it? Or were you enjoying the work? Were you enjoying your job otherwise? Like, How did that break down for you when you started thinking about leaving what obviously you worked very hard to achieve? Well, so the, the story of my departure is, is a relatively long and, and tortured one. And for people who follow me on social media, I've been posting a little bit about it from, from time to time. But kind of the short version is I ended up going off work very early in, in 2021, actually really close to uh, around this time when we're talking. And um, I essentially just burned right out. You know, I was I was so exhausted. I was overworked. I was not happy in my role. You know, the pandemic was just out of control as it sort of is again now. <laughs> so I, I was off for about two months. I was seeing specialists. I was on medication and it was in my attempt to return to work that I think I just realized that 
I loved the actual legal work that I was doing. And, you know, I loved the litigation. I liked my clients, but just being in the, the structure that I was in, in terms of being a partner, but still feeling like I had no control over very basic things, like who I'm working with, whether or not I need more help or the decision to hire a, a law clerk or an associate. There's just so many decisions that are outside of your control. And I felt like I needed certain things to be able to feel comfortable in my job and, and to do a good job. So I think all of that sort of came together with the disappointment and what the partner role was like. And it led me eventually to decide to, to wing it and see if I could make, make it work on my own. That's incredible. And it's funny, obviously I got nowhere near your level and left much sooner, but that you hit on something that really resonated with me was that sort of lack of control that you have. I remember when I was a young associate, one of the hardest parts I found about it was knowing that anything could drop on you at any time. That was one of the things that I had a really, that I really struggled with that I had no control, like you said, over who I was working with, when I was working, when things were due. And it made it really difficult to even make basic plans with your partner or friends or anyone like that, because out of the blue, something could drop on you and you have to respond. You were expected to respond. And it was weird because the problem with that, that I found was that even in my downtime, I couldn't relax or I had a difficult time relaxing because you were just so anxious every time my, I, and I'm not joking about this. And I think I've said this before. It took me probably about six or nine months after leaving the firm where I'd feel my phone buzz in my pocket and I wouldn't get anxiety from it being like, you know, what fresh hell awaits kind of thing. I don't know if that resonates with you, but that, uh, that, that certainly struck a chord there. Over time for me, the, the lack of control you know, at some point it shifts. When you're an associate, it's sort of lack of control in the terms of where the work's coming from and, and which partner is going to come banging down the door or which assignment's going to come back. You know, I, I had reached the stage where I was mostly doing my own work for my own clients. I was still doing some work for firm clients as well. And the lack of control that, that I was getting was more on the control over who do I have to help me with my work. A lot of large firms are, are undergoing changes in terms of reducing overhead expenses, you know, more, more lawyers on the assistants and the law clerks, which has them pulled in, in many different directions. And with associates too, I'm a fairly, I don't know, uh, I don't like overworking people. So if I see that all the associates are overworked, I don't want to pile more work on their plate. So I was struggling towards the end with feeling like, okay, the people I need to do my work physically can't do it because they're too busy. And I, and I refuse to delegate work to an associate who's already on pace to do 22 or 2300 hours. Like I'm just not going to do it. So I think that's why I realized that in order to have complete control over who I'm working with and our workflows, the only way to really do that is to either go on your own or to join up with another small firm that has similar, similar values. And ultimately I just felt like at the time working on my own was the best situation for me because I could have a hundred percent control over all of those things. And the stress that I thought I'd have with having a small practice hasn't been there at all because I have control over these things. 
Incredible. So let's go there. Uh, tell us about that decision. And I assume it was a fairly nerve wracking one, at least at the beginning. But how did you go about it? And tell us about the setup and what you're doing differently from some of these problems that we've already articulated. You know, when I decided to leave, the first decision was I'm leaving. I, I didn't really know where I would go. And I just knew I needed to go. So I, I did talk with a few, a few firms, the, the Ottawa legal market has fairly limited options compared to other other cities. There just aren't a ton of litigation firms, especially good ones that I, I'd be interested in going into. So I did talk to a couple firms in other cities to see if they'd, given the remote work environment, whether they'd take on a remote partner from Ottawa. And, you know, some of them were relatively open to it. But like I said, I, I wasn't 100% comfortable that joining an existing firm was what I needed. So you know, I just sat down one day and started thinking about what the overhead expenses would be for a small firm, you know, law pro insurance, law society fees, how much does a laptop cost? Cause I didn't even have my own laptop. And on the other side of the ledger, I, I did an estimate of sort of my worst case scenario in terms of clients that I, I could bank on coming with me. And I realized pretty quick that I wouldn't have to work very hard to, to make the same income <laughs> I had been earning at the, at the big firm. So I did really well in the departure. All, all the clients I expected to come with me did. One large client that I was unsure if they'd want to work with somebody that was basically running out of their house also decided to come. And it's primarily because of that client that I've hired associates and law clerks because they, they send relatively high volume. And, and yeah, like the things we're doing differently are mainly around keeping the cost down. We don't have a traditional bricks and mortar office with all kinds of fancy furniture and uh, a castle in the sky, uh, so to speak. We are 100% remote. So I have a law clerk in Barrie. I have an associate in Toronto. I have an associate with me in Ottawa. So that's been great in terms of being able to recruit talented people from from wherever they happen to be. And, you know, we're experimenting with some other things. Some of my clients are very used to the billable hour. So I'm, I'm never going to be able to walk them away from the billable hour, but we're offering other clients, either fixed fees or subscription fee type, type services as a way to, to make, make it easier for us in terms of cash flow, but also to give the clients a bit more predictability. Incredible. And obviously that resonates a lot with what we're trying to do here at Good Lawyer. Same type of concept in the sense that clients don't like paying for the overhead. So why do it? Right. And obviously it's, it's kind of a fixture of, I guess, the traditional model, but a couple of things that you hit on there first about it, not requiring as much as you thought to break even or, or make a, a living wage for yourself. Because I think a lot of lawyers that I've spoken with, that's one of the big fear fear points when they're thinking about moving out on their own is, can I do this? Like, you know, look at all the structure I have in the firm. And it's, and it, and it also kind of makes me laugh because when lawyers speak with each other, they tell them, okay, my billable hour is X, right? But the funny thing is, is that obviously the lawyer doesn't see that billable hour. That's not what they earn an hour. The, the firm takes a massive cut of that and they make something much less. So when you do move out on your own, it, it's incredible because you don't have to give so much back to the firm and the structure, you know, you get to keep a lot more. And that's kind of one of the messages that we're preaching uh, here at Good 
good lawyer is saying, yeah, but look, instead of the firm taking 60, 70%, whatever that is, you get to keep 80% of whatever you're billing, which means that you can charge a whole lot less potentially and still be able to, to break even. I, I don't know if that's what you found as well or. Uh... But, and, you know, another part of it is, and I never understood this the whole time I was in big law, it, the focus on how many hours you work in a year was, was like, paramount to everything. To get your bonus, you had to hit your billable hours target. To make more money, you had to do even more hours. But like, as soon as I went out on my own, I stopped even looking at my hours or thinking about hours because all that matters is how much money you're bringing in. Right. Um, And whether that money comes in from build hours or flat fees or subscriptions or, you know, book sales, or we do webinars for clients for like 25 bucks. And we get a lot of people that come and we make a bit of money off the webinar. Like, you know, so for me, I, I don't even look at our lawyers hours. I don't know how many hours I work in a month. I, I look at how much money I need to make a month to earn the salary that I, I decide to pay myself. And, and that's really it. And you're, you're totally right that by not having to give so much money back to the firm, it, it really just frees up your time. So, you know, if I wanted to, I could work a million hours a year and, and make a whole lot of money. But, you know, for me to live a very comfortable life and, and match my big law income, I, I really don't need to work that many hours. Yeah. So maybe just speak a little bit about starting your own firm. Any advice that you would have for someone? I know there's many who are thinking about doing their own things, but again, it's it, it seems like such a big task to break down. If there's a, a few pointers that you'd have to tell someone who is thinking about doing something similar, what would those be? It's not as hard as you think. So, you know, there was two resources that I consulted that I found helpful. So the Law Society of Ontario has a guidebook on basically how to start a law practice. And it has some practical guidelines in there, but it also incorporates in obviously your law society requirements. Um, Clio, the practice management software company also has a guide on how to start a, a law firm, which I found helpful. And I also just found chatting with people who've done it helpful because everyone likes talking about their business and what they've built. So I, I had a lot of friends who had done it over the years, who had different pieces of, of advice, whether it was accounting software or document management software. But really, like, it doesn't have to be complicated. I, I decided I was leaving and I gave my notice that I was leaving before I even know, knew I was going to do this. And I ended up setting up the entire firm, you know, at least the skeletons of the firm within like a week and a half or two weeks. So it's not a, a terrible thing to do. And I actually found that the work involved in setting up the firm didn't really feel like work. You know, it felt like I was, I was uh-huh. doing something for myself and building something that was fun. So some people that, that, that idea might just scare them off and you could probably hire consultants to do all the background work for you. But, but for me, it just felt like I was doing something that was positive for myself. And, and when I worked on getting the firm website up you know I was excited by it so so I think my main message that I tell everyone is it's really not that hard and but just if you're thinking about it just set aside a couple hours one Saturday or Sunday afternoon and, and get working on a checklist of what you have to do and and I think people would realize that that anyone can do it that's incredible and some some great resources there as well so once you got it going, 
obviously you're trying to do things a little bit differently. And I am reading off your site right now that it says that your firm aims to provide efficient, practical, and timely representation to a small roster of dedicated clients, focusing on quality over quantity. The firm is always there when clients need urgent assistance. And then you also describe yourself as not a volume practice. So what? maybe just dig into that a little bit and, and tell me what that means. Part of the practice I was leaving behind at the big firm was a lot of insurance defense work, which was good in terms of constantly giving you work, but it was extremely high volume. You would carry well over a hundred files um, at a time. And you know you could do it because all the files were quite similar. You're dealing with the same clients all the time. But I, I realized as the years sort of went on that I didn't find that intellectually stimulating. It, it tended to also be lower hourly rate work. It was good work in terms of getting me court experience and experience doing discoveries and motions, but it, it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing for the next 25, 30 years of my life, you know? So what we're trying to do is we have one client that sends us a, a decent volume of work, but probably only 25, 30 files a year, which is very manageable. And then we're, we're really targeting some good corporate clients some good sport clients that sends us repeat business that we can sort of develop a partnership with. You know, we feel like we're, we're part of their team, even though we're external. I refer a ton of work out to other lawyers in areas where people come to me looking for advice because they've seen me on social media or they see me on, on the news. And I'm just like, you know, we, we probably could do that, but I don't really want to do that. So we're pretty selective in, in what we take. We do a lot of co-counsel work with other firms. So starting next week, I'm going into a trial that's going to take up two months of my time. And right. I wouldn't be able to do that if I, I had a very high volume practice because I'd have all these other files I would need to manage. So that's sort of the, the gist behind what we do. If we're slower and there's a, a smaller litigation matter for a friend or for a referral coming in from a firm, Occasionally we'll, we'll take it if we've got the capacity, but, you know, I'm not really here to collect as many files as I can and to just keep growing and growing and getting bigger. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do the, the work we're interested in and keep everybody busy, but also, you know, allow us to have a bit of a life. So, so how do you do that? Cause that was, you're leading me into my next question. Obviously I think sometimes inadvertently, when lawyers strike out because they're frustrated with the traditional system, they end up rebuilding a version of it. Now, obviously you started in the pandemic. You've already discussed how you're fully remote, which I'd love to hear how you manage your team. That, that it, my, my perspective on that is that it is challenging in the sense that I love remote work, but I also love the option of coming into the office to get the team together, all that kind of stuff. But what's your management philosophy in the sense that you don't want to turn this into you know a grindhouse where all of a sudden the billable hours are all that matters again and all of that. But at the same time, you do need efficiency, organization, people to stay on topic. So how, how do you balance those two sides of that equation? Very good question. And it's actually something I was just thinking about today. I came across a blog on um, LinkedIn from Murray Gottheel, and it was all about developing law firm compensation structures and even firms that try to develop different structures, sort of end up recreating the same structure. So it's totally top of mind. I think how we've developed differently is that, 
you know, I started the firm as a place where I could practice law in sort of a healthy way. I was coming off of a big health crisis, a burnout situation. And my number one goal when I started the firm was I wanted to practice law and and not burn myself out again. So it's almost like one of our founding values that, you know, we just don't want to kill ourselves working, (laughs) you know, and everything (laughs) we do is sort of revolves around that. And, you know, the, the newest associate that I just brought on, the way I ended up hiring him was he and I had worked it together in the past and he just reached out to have a, a chat because he felt like he was working, you know, harder than he wanted to at his current firm. And he was going into the holidays, which included a, a big hearing in January. And he was just sort of like, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. And I was like, welcome aboard. Like, you know, <laughs> So I think that's part of it. And, and the, the fully remote part of, of your question is also an interesting one. And and so far, it's been relatively easy. So the, the law clerk who I work with, her and I ha- already had an existing relationship. We had worked together in the past. We knew each other. We didn't have to, like, meet each other only online. And and she's been doing this for almost 40 years. So she didn't really need much in the way of instruction. You know, similar story with the new associate I, I just brought on in terms of he and I had already worked together in the past. We we know how each other works. Um, he also has young kids at home, so he likes to be able to spend more time with them. And the the other associate we have, Leslie Ann, she's only ever worked at a firm in a remote environment because of the pandemic. So she articled during the pandemic. They were fully remote. She led a session for her government department for the lawyers about how she would recommend mentoring and working with younger people during the pandemic, which I thought was pretty cool. So, you know, I think so far it's been okay. What we do is each morning we have sort of a 10 minute coffee chat at at nine o'clock. We bring the team together and we just sort of talk about whatever and and plan our day. Uh, We use teams constantly, lots of video chats and, we get together in person two or three times a year to do sort of a mini retreat just to like, you know, hang out and, and see each other in a social way. Um, you know, what I think about and what I worry about is, is this model sustainable if we keep getting bigger and, and we start hiring people, you know, outside of my circle who I've never met before, or how would we train a brand new law clerk entirely remotely? Those are the things that, I don't know how we would do that right. going forward. And I haven't had to deal with it yet, but those are certainly some of the challenges I see for fully remote firms. It's incredible. The parallels between setting up your own practice and being an entrepreneur, which I do view as one in the same thing, but even, you know, your morning standups and all this, but the principle that I seem to be pulling for what you just said there is higher talent, higher self-motivated people. I think that's a lesson that, um, We've learned, thankfully, early on at Good Lawyer, because that part is, I think, very difficult to instill. People need to bring that to the table. And if they have that, everything else seems to flow much more smoothly. And it sounds like you're, you're doing a great job there. And maybe, is there anything else I missed about your firm that you think our listeners should know? I just add, you know, maybe one more point there. And it's the idea of hiring good people. And for me... I always had, I think, a slightly different view of of what made a, a good lawyer than some people at the large firm. I think a lot of people at the large firm viewed the perfect young lawyer as the person who 
you know, was good at researching, kept their head down and could grind out a million hours. And for me, I always looked at people as if, you know, can this person grow a business? So our newest lawyer, Andrew Patterson, he worked with me at my old firm and, and he didn't do well there. You know, I loved him. I gave him a ton of work, but ultimately he was sort of not treated the best and, and decided to leave. And when he first left the firm as only a, a two or three year lawyer, I think only a two year lawyer, he actually set up a sole practice for a bit and, and did really well before he ended up joining another boutique again. So when I was looking for someone to bring on board, I, I knew he was capable of, of growing a business. He had already done it. And, right. and similar with Leslie Ann Sina Moore, who was my first hire, the, the first time I encountered her was I was observing a, a CPD, continuing education program, and she had been invited to speak on behalf of articling students just about the pandemic and mental health and struggles. And, and she just sort of blew me away. It was an audience of, you know, hundreds of people across Ontario. And I was sort of like, wow, like this young girl is impressive. And then it was two or three weeks later, she just so happened to apply to the firm. And wow. And I knew that she'd be great because I had seen her and she was out in the community and speaking. So those are the types of people that, that I want in the firm. You know, I don't want the traditional big law associate who's kind of trapped in the meat grinder, just doing doc review forever and research (laughs) forever. I want people who are interested in building a business and getting clients because I think I can help them with that part of it. And the, the faster I can get them up and running with their own files, even if it's just small claims or advisory work, you know, the, the better the firm's going to be for it. So that's sort of my mentality is we're, we're growing a group. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that answer. Absolutely love it. And I'm actually going to take that question and file it in, in my, uh, my sort of matrix here about can you build a business? Because I think you're right. If you can handle that type of complexity, obviously you're going to need to learn the the technical aspects of that. Yet, like you know, that's not something that's bestowed upon too many. That's for sure. But just having that ability to handle probably complexity and keep your head and all of that, I think is just such a fantastic point to to look for. Kind of getting back and leading me into the kind of maybe our final section here. We do have a a friend in common or an acquaintance in common, Mitch Kowalski, and how uh, you you first came on my radar. But it was an interesting point you made about your new hire there about leaving the firm, because it's interesting. I started, like I said, at a big firm a few years ago. And obviously going through law school, you have a lot of colleagues and everything that get hired at big firms and all of that. And I think now I can count on one hand how many people I know that are still in their original position at big firms. The rate of attrition, and this is completely, I'm not looking at the stats or anything like that, but it just seems like the rate of attrition is going through the roof. And it, it shocks me that big firms don't seem to be that bothered by it. Now, maybe I'm still new in this world and maybe they've seen this before and this is nothing to be worried about. That said, it seems like there's a fundamental rebellion against sort of the traditional model. And I'd just love to get your thoughts on where you see our profession going. Uh, do you, and, and maybe as my final point, and I'll shut up, I promise. Uh, Mitch kind of talked about going back to a bit of a cottage industry, you know, seeing that maybe smaller firms becoming more powerful, especially through the use and implementation of technology, these types of things. Love to hear your thoughts on it and just maybe what to look for too, if you're a l- young lawyer just getting going. 
And and Mitch and I are 100% on the same page with that. I remember the first time that he and I had an actual discussion outside of Twitter and we were both just nodding along, you know? So I think he's entirely right. And, and where I think the big firms are going to have trouble is retaining truly motivated people that are good at building a business because cool. the path to equity partnership is so long and it's getting longer. It's no longer the case where if you just stick around long enough, you're, you're going to make it. You know, most large firms, their equity partnership numbers aren't expanding. And the only way you, you get into that level is if somebody retires or you happen to grow a whole bunch of business. So, you know, while I was still buying into the system, and I talk about this in, in the ebook quite a bit, the only way I saw for myself to get there was to, to build my own business and to keep bringing in more pies, as I like to say. And eventually I was getting so frustrated by the lack of support that I felt I needed. So, you know, the legal assistant or the law clerk support or the associate lawyer support, which I felt like I had to beg and scream for, but I was still giving the firm so much of my profits and my, my business. And it was paying for things like, you know, a giant office that we weren't working in because of the pandemic and a giant marketing department who had never really done much for me directly. And all of the overhead, just, you know, the furniture, just all of the stuff. And I was like, I don't need any of the stuff. Like I need some people to do my work on my files, you know? So for <laughs> me, it just never, it didn't make sense at the end of the day. It's like, why am I doing this when I can make the same money not pay for the right. stuff I don't need and, and, and decide what I spend my money on. So I don't know. I think that, I think that there's always going to be this pressure at the law school level to funnel people into the big law jobs, just because there are so many of those jobs. And, you know, it is, I think at some firms, good training in terms of yep. how to run files and how to research properly. But I don't know, like there's a huge turnover at that three to five year level. And, and yep. I think there always has been, but I think what you'll see is more of the people that big law firms want to stay, like the, the business development folks who can manage a practice. I think a lot of those folks are going to leave and the people who stay will be the ones that are comfortable just being fed work and having the behind the scenes role. So, so yeah, I, I do think that this cottage industry of, of boutiques and small firms are going to pop up. I think you're going to see some of those small firms working together in sort of informal arrangements, which our firm does, you know, we bring on co-counsel from whatever, depending on what the case is. And, and yeah, so I think that is the future, but you know, I, I don't think the big law firms are going out of business anytime soon. For it's sure. just, I feel like, I just feel like the, the talent is going to be more evenly distributed amongst the smaller shops. Well, it's funny. It's like, stop buying the fancy paintings, get me another associate, which seems to be the, the opposite of, of what sometimes happens at these firms. Right. Yeah. Like I remember we had, we had a couple webinars with guest speakers that I'm sure were paid talking about wellness. And I was just like, take that money and get me a legal assistant. You know what I mean? Like there's such a disconnect between what the firm spent money on and what the 
the people on the ground needed, you know, the wellness webinar became my nemesis. It was like, <laughs> like, you don't need to fix me. I'm already running. I'm eating healthy. I cannot possibly work any more hours. Like get me some more people to do some work, you know? So I, I feel like that's the type of stuff that eventually drives people away. And I think the great resignation is sort of already happening, but it, you know, in, in Canada, the bonuses tend to get paid in, in February. So I'm sort of anticipating yeah. March and April to be pretty painful at some firms. So we'll see. Yeah, I think uh, many echo your frustrations with those, you know, health and wellness kind of seminars. Not that they're not important. Obviously, that is very important. But it's like, we're going to add this mandatory wellness seminar so that your day goes from, you know, 16 hours to 17. And yeah, as you said, there seems to be a disconnect when it's like, hey, if you want to help my my well-being, I, let's get some more people in here to, to help out or better technology, better processes, those things. So any any advice that you'd have to younger lawyers who may be wrestling with these decisions at the moment? Yeah. And, and I've done this really early on. So as I said at the beginning, I summered an article at a big firm and I left for a bit and I went back to a big firm. And what leading showed me was I worked at this small boutique litigation firm for three years. And the litigator there, the main guy was just phenomenal, excellent skills, excellent reputation, great clients. And it really showed me that you didn't need to be in one of those big firms to do amazing amazing work. I think it's, it's harder to find those, those yeah. smaller firms because they're not, a lot of them don't have the time to be at the law schools and they're not the ones that have a sign at the law school, a boardroom sponsored by so-and-so, but you know, they're, they're out there and they, they provide really good opportunities. If you're thinking of going to big law or if you're in big law and you're not sure it's for you long-term, just know there's really good quality work elsewhere yeah. and really different expectations in terms of work-life balance as well. I, I get really disappointed when I see a young lawyer who's only ever worked in big law and, and they just decide, you know, I can't do law anymore. I'm going to go into a, a different role because I, I really try to encourage those people to just try, try private practice in a different firm. Like, I, I don't think it's private practice you don't like. I think it's big law that you don't like, but some people just get so disenchanted by it so early in their career and, and just give up when I feel like there's so many other options that they could try instead. Absolutely. No, that's a fantastic answer. So my final question here, and I ask this to all our guests, if there's one thing that you could change about the legal profession, what would that be? Good question. Cause I've got lots of complaints. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's almost overwhelming, isn't it? <laughs> my complaint of the month is I get very annoyed when lawyers or firms talk out of both sides of their mouth on diversity and inclusion. Oh. So every big firm has on their website a very nice looking section about how much they care about women in law and diversity in law. Sometimes the photos on that website section aren't even of lawyers who work there. You know, right. And so you, you kind of see that. And then at the same time, you'll see that the new partner announcements, for example, which are starting to come out early January every year. And the majority of people are, are still white guys and maybe a couple of women, maybe one person of color. But, you know, I just feel like people notice that that work in those firms, people notice that that are in the community that care about the issue. And 
and it's just sort of my my current annoyance. So, you know, I, I wish that people would either do the work required to actually make the workplace diverse or just stop, right. you know, virtue signaling and making it look like you're woke and, and that you care about these <laughs> things. Because when you're kind of trying to look like you're doing something, but you're not actually doing anything, I think that's what really upsets people. So that's my current rant. I think that's a great one. And I know the heat is being turned up on many of these law firms for exactly that. And frankly, the associates talk about it too. Uh, you know, the, at least the ones like everyone recognizes it. It's like, oh yeah, we have to go do this whole thing. But when it comes down to it, is there really any meaningful change? Like you said, are they, is it changing behavior? And oftentimes, at least at this point, it doesn't seem like it is maybe, maybe again, I don't know. I'm not privy to all these inside the discussions or anything like that, but certainly your sentiments are, are shared by many. At least, you know, the, the one piece of advice, if, if you are going to not do much and, and you're going to publish your new partner announcements, like don't make a composite photo of like 12 <laughs> white people. Just list the names and make people do some digging before they just right. openly mock you on the internet. I'm thinking of that one U.S. law firm a couple of years ago who really got called out for appointing. I think it was 10 people that looked basically exactly the same and one woman. So anyway, that's my, yeah. my annoyance. And it, it kind of happens every year around this time when you start seeing the people who are actually getting promoted and they don't really look like the diverse class of folks that you see in law school. So. Right. Yeah. Great point. So just last uh, point here, where can people find you if they want to follow you? And obviously, how can they get your, your book? Yeah, so I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter at Aaron Durant 42. And our firm website is durantbarristers.com. Uh, we've got a little store on the site where you can find the book. I also have it pinned on my, my LinkedIn and my Twitter. So you'll be able to to find it there. And we're in the process of getting it up on, on Amazon so you can have it on your Kindle and stuff too, but uh, that might take another couple of weeks. Amazing. Well, hey, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for, for taking the time. And yeah, all the best with your, your firm and obviously the change that you're making in the legal profession. Thanks for having me, Matt. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. If you or a lawyer you know would like to find out more information about practicing on the Good Lawyer platform, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash four dash lawyers for all the details. Links, as always, in the show notes. Thanks for listening.